Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, culminators. Today I'm talking to my friend Gavin Wax, the ubiquitous Gavin Wax. He's everywhere. We need to figure out exactly what Gavin is up to right now, what his official, what his official thing is, what his unofficial things are, but more importantly, I want to know what he, who is, who is as much, who, of all the people I know, who I truly know, the most grassroots political activist person there is among conservatives, where he thinks we go from now, and, and maybe whether he thinks there are things that have been missed in uh, the, the, the wound licking and uh, other postmortems of the election. Gavin Wax, known best, best known as the president of the New York Young Republican Club. Thanks for coming and culminating with me today. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Ron. Thank you for having me back. And uh, thank you for that uh, introduction. I really appreciate the kind words and I'm looking forward to our discussion. So tell me, what was your focus running up to the election? Last time this year, we were talking about Curtis Sliwa. That was, would have been an uncomfortable conversation for both of us. Um, but right now, uh, in, in 22, what were, you, what, were you, what were you focusing on? You and I, you and I assume with you schlepping the club along with you in the leadership, what was, what was your, your laser-like focus? There was a lot of schlepping uh, pre-election. There was a lot of kvetching post-election. Uh, as far as my focus uh, leading up to the election, obviously with the club, uh, we were doing a ton of work locally here in New York. I think many people have been rightly pointing out that there was a bit of a red wave in the in the Empire State, the Blue Empire State. Uh, we had candidates up and down the ballot, members of ours for state senate, for state assembly, for Congress, uh, and we had many victories. I think we had uh, two members of our club are now uh, entering. Uh, uh, as freshmen into the new Congress, uh, George Santos on Long Island and Mark Molinaro uh, in the Hudson Valley. We already had two uh, members of Congress already in Congress uh, that were members of the club. And then at the local level, we've seen a flip uh, for an assembly seat in Brooklyn for a certain Mr. Lester Chang, who is a member of the club. And we did put a lot of effort into trying to get elected uh, the youngest who would have been the youngest member of the state Senate in its history, Stefano Forte. Unfortunately, he lost by a very narrow margin uh, in flipping that uh, his district down in Queens. So we did a lot of work on the local level, a lot of deployments, a lot of grassroots activism, like you mentioned in the introduction, which I appreciated, a lot of door knocking, all the the, the non-sexy stuff that makes these campaigns uh, really click. Uh, but it was good to see a lot of wins in the Empire State. Obviously, the state being within five points at the statewide level was an incredible uh, victory in and of itself. And I'm hoping that a lot of the uh, coalitions that were built during this race here in the here in New York can hold uh, for future cycles. And I hope we can build off of this uh, 40 something percent uh, statewide victory and turn it into a real governing coalition down the line in New York. Uh, I think with a place like New York, uh, the one thing we have working for us is things have gotten so bad 
Uh, there's really only one direction and it's up. Uh, and I think that really goes, if you, if you take that and you apply it nationally, it just goes to show that politics really are local. And I think a lot of the results we saw in different states uh, really could be tied more into the local environment rather than the national trends. We all talked about the national trends being in our favor, but an issue like crime, for example, is not universal. Uh, the crime situation in a place like Florida or Texas is, is miles apart from where it is in New York. So you saw states like New York really trend right uh, because the fundamentals were just really, really bad. And I think uh, I think that's something that's being missed in some of the discussions. But even though there's a lot of, uh, you know, good salient points being made uh, by many different analysts uh, about what went wrong on, on Tuesday. But, you know, we can dive into that more as this uh, show progresses. Well, and there, yeah, and there's, a, and, and there's plenty to unpack into what you just said. I mean, first of all, at the end of the day, Hochul was reelected. I saw something, I don't know if, if you've seen the same thing. Basically, the black vote in in New York is what put her over. So I would say this. Um, I was a little frustrated with some of the Republican leadership in our state because they saw internals, they saw public polls that saw that showed this to be a tight race, if not a race that we were in the lead. Um, and I do believe that those polls did show accurate snapshots in time for likely voters. I think obviously there's some issues with polling, not being able to properly model mail-in, early votes, all that kind of stuff, ballot harvesting. That's a separate issue with that industry. But the problem I had is that we took those polls and we ran out and we bragged and we, we boasted and we, we were already measuring the drapes up in Albany. Uh, and I know this was the case. Many staffers, many other people in the apparatus uh, were, were creating enemies lists. They were creating, you know, a transition. They were they were getting really ahead of themselves. And then you have people like uh, Mark Levine here in Manhattan, who, you know, we all made fun of because he was coming out on Twitter begging, you know, Democrats to turn out uh, because they saw this. And to the Democrats' credit, they did not rest on their laurels. They actually got into high gear. They they pulled up their bootstraps and they, they greased their machine, their well-oiled machine. They got the boats out. And when you have a long runway, uh, as Democrats have created in places like New York, a long runway of early voting and mail-in voting and ballot harvesting, all these things, you can whip the, the votes from an unenthusiastic base and they had a massive enthusiasm gap but that enthusiasm gap can be minimized with enough time and now it has been codified the amount of time they have is, is pretty significant and there was a case in new york about trying to eliminate the absentee ballot for covid reasons uh the democrat party sent out uh, an absentee ballot request to every registered democrat which it was and it was pre-filled uh, as COVID as the excuse, and 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 the Republican Party failed uh, to get that that struck down in the courts. So when we were coming out and you know prematurely bragging, I think that certainly hurt us. And I think the other point to be made is that um, Hochul people were voting against Hochul. I do not believe they were necessarily voting for Republicans, voting for Zeldin. I think that's the distinction. And you in a narrow race like this voting against someone could get you close, but voting for someone is going to be that oomph that pushes you over. And I'm not sure uh, that the Republican Party in the state of New York made that case effectively. Uh, and had it done so, I think we could have been looking at a victory because I do truly believe this was a winnable race here in New York for well, governor and statewide. You know, but that's interesting to me because Lee's a real, I, Lee was a Zelda. I, see, I say Lee because I've spoken to him by a Zoom uh, at, a, at, at an event. I don't, he's, he's not my friend, but but he is so personable that I do want to call him Lee. He strikes me as an appealing candidate. So why do you, is, well, what am I missing in terms of selling Lee Zeller as opposed to selling 
not I don't I mean and, and on the flip side of that you can answer what's appealing about Catherine Hulchel nothing there's nothing appealing about her nothing. but when you're, when you're operating in an environment like New York where the entire system and all the institutions are obviously they're stacked against us nationally we, we've talked about that before but they're stacked against us even more monumentally in a place like New York uh you need to have uh, you need to be just operating at, at a 200 uh, percent performance and efficiency in everything you do. And look, I think Lee Zeldin uh, would have made a solid governor. I think he was a solid member of Congress. I do think, though, that, you know, talking objectively, there were some things that could have been done better. I think from a charisma standpoint, I think he lacked it. I don't think he was the most charismatic candidate. He started to fix that towards the end of the race. And frankly speaking, bluntly speaking, as someone who was working on the ground and behind the scenes and I think privy, more privy to some of these things than many people uh, may, may, may be, uh, I think his team, I, I, I think his team was subpar. I think he had a very, uh, subpar team, largely out of state people who do not understand the unique dynamics in a place like New York, especially in a place like New York city. Uh, you know, for example, bringing in a guy from Alabama to be your coalitions director and managing the various ethnic politicking that goes on in a place like New York city is not a great move. Uh, I also don't think he worked well with the rest of the ticket. I think this was an issue that many people brought up. I think, uh, the party and him were trying to paint himself as the Superman and, and, and the Messiah while, you know, ignoring the rest of the ticket, whether it Comptroller, Senate, uh, and Attorney General, and many of these 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 campaigns and these candidates had a fraction of the money, a fraction of the resources, and in fact, they performed in some locales and some districts better than Lee. Um, and I also think there were a lot of down ballot candidates who also performed better than Lee. And I think a lot of credit is being given to him uh, for some of the down ballot successes, and he certainly is due some of those successes, but that is not a universal take. That is not a universal position. I mean, there were certainly many congressional, state senate, and other candidates who actually helped carry Lee in their respective districts. So I think there was certainly an issue with the campaign. I think there was certainly an issue with charisma. Um, and I think there was certainly an issue uh, with some of the messaging, especially in response to issues like abortion, uh, uh, that definitely could have held him back. But I still think he ran uh, an overall good campaign, but I do think that this was a winnable race. I think we had other candidates in the primary uh, that were maybe to his left, and I'm certainly not a left winger. I'm definitely on, some would describe the far right, but I think in a place like New York, there were candidates in the primary, Harry Wilson, Astorino, et cetera, who I do believe uh, could have uh, won over more of the moderate Dems, more of the independent it maybe even some liberals uh, just due to their background ideologically and, and, and professionally. Uh, uh, that I, I, I think, issue. but I think you do get points. I think Lee uh, Zeldin generated Jewish votes. He did. I think he did. I think he did a very good job uh, with the Hasidic uh, vote. I think that was kind of a late minute, last minute thing. Uh, I think he did do well there. And I think there's a lot of realignment happening in places like Brooklyn, for example. Uh, so that's, he certainly, uh, can get points for that. Um, I do think for another, if we're gonna talk demographics, I think a lot of emphasis in this campaign was put on the Asian vote, which I do think is a vote in New York that is shifting right. You have a lot of issues, particularly crime, particularly meritocracy in, in school admissions, You know, for a lot of the different specialized high schools in the cities. These were issues, localized issues that really uh, played well with Asian American voters for the Republican party. The problem with the Asian American vote and the amount of effort he put into it was that simply there are not enough 
Asian American voters and they are not as geographically spread as, say, Hispanics. And I think this was an issue that also plagued Trump's 2020 campaign. You get a lot more bang for your buck uh, from Hispanic voters uh, across the state. They're just a larger demographic group. They are a group that's trending and realigning very organically towards the right without a lot of emphasis and push from a lot of the Republican institutions and organizations. Uh, so thus, I think this was a group that he sort of missed out on uh, in his attempts to focus largely on, say, Asian American voters. Now, this is obviously, we're kind of getting in the weeds, it's getting very granular and, and nuanced, but I do think- some Well, no, but you know what, you know what, Gavin, I, I, I really welcome that opportunity because I, I think, I think there, there's a lot, the thing about New York is, I don't think anyone foresaw how it would come out I think there are a lot of really important lessons to be learned. I mean, one, again, I, I, I don't think you answered the question directly. I don't think it was on purpose. I understand that there was, in contrast to the Hasidic and, and, and Orthodox vote right. in New York, and in contrast to the Latino or Hispanic vote in New York, Blacks still are part of the democratic machine in New York. Yep. And that that's a that's a real challenge. That's yeah. a real challenge. And I was talking to to Jeremy before you, you came on. Uh, it seems that we there's still a a a structural problem for Republicans which is that there are really four cities in this country. Yep. where on the one hand there there's well basically they control election outcomes. Yep. And and in those four cities, anything goes. Yep. Absolutely well, anything goes. And you look at the BOE, the Board of Elections, as it's structured in New York. I mean, it's an archaic kind of Tammany Hall-style system where the party bosses uh, appoint the commissioners, they appoint the staff. The whole thing is a patronage uh, uh, kind of mill. It's and like a throwback to the Board of Estimate. I mean. Yeah, it, it's really old school Gotham corrupt. And you, you talk about these machines and these systems and you talk about the black vote. I mean, you, you put these machines in, in, in some of the housing projects and, you know, they'll turn the machines on. They already have a few thousand votes in them. That is a real thing. That that's is something, real, you know. That's a real thing. I mean, my our, a, a, a friend of mine, who I don't know if he wants to be quoted saying this, but who, who watched polls in, in Philadelphia in, I remember whether it was 2012, 2016, the, he, he was outside the precinct and all of a sudden he noticed a flow of people going into a house across the street, a townhouse. Went downstairs. They had two voting machines down there just chugging out. Yep. Chugging out votes. Yep. It was that was just, you know, there, there's something I mean, we're not going to solve that problem during this call, but it, I do think it is fair to say that you can, you can to, to some extent, I mean, New York demonstrates that nonetheless, you can really achieve something politically, right? even without solving that really intractable right. problem. So what went right in New York besides, and, and, you know, I mean, the, you, you weren't crazy about Lee Zeldin as a gubernatorial candidate. How about though, what went right with recruiting? You, you know, you, I, it wasn't that long ago that, the idea of anyone with any kind of political ambition throwing themselves into a 
to running on a Republican ticket in the state of New York, or and, and certainly anywhere close to New York, uh, to, to the city, including the island, you know, including, uh, you know, uh, Westchester, places where real gains were made would have been right. preposterous. What, what changed? Look, I, I, I do think that the issues in New York that are talked about nationally, you know, crime, the economy, I mean, just the quality of life have deteriorated to a, a, a a really crazy degree that you have turned some suburbanites, you have turned some more Democrat liberal voters against the Democrat Party. And I, I think, you know, the, the environment was there for a Republican resurgence, whether it was Lee or whether it was ever. I, I generally think that things have gotten so bad in New York uh, that they, they, it was being turned around uh, in some ways politically on the ground. I mean, we, we, we surpassed 30 percent in New York City, which was unheard of. Even Pataki, when he won, only got 27 percent in the city. Uh, we surpassed 40 percent in a borough like Queens. Uh, so there's certainly a lot of realignment going on. There there's certainly a lot of fertile ground for the Republican Party in New York. Uh, and I think depending on how they message and how they craft a certain policy platform unique to the state of New York, they can really uh, solidify uh, the trends and what happened in New York because of Lee Zeldin. And I do agree with you. I think, you know, it, there, there is a lot of positive takeaways for the fact that this is a five point race in a place like New York, which has the systemic electoral issues that we discussed, which has the machine, which has, you know, all the built in advantages for the Democrat Party. And we still came within five points. So I, I think it just goes to show that while we can we can walk and chew gum at the same time, we can actively fight, litigate and push through the legislative process reforms to the election system to make it a fairer, more transparent, uh, less prone to corrupt electoral system while at the same time running races that keep in mind a margin of fraud that you have to surpass uh, if you are to win. And it's basically like playing on handicap. You got to win uh, a few extra points to overcome that margin of fraud, which certainly exists, especially in a place like New York and a lot of other, a lot of these other inner cities and people that know, uh, you know, the political history of this country, you know, going back to the 1800s, going back to the Gilded Age, know, and, and even more recently, all the way up to the 1960s, et cetera, people who know that political history of the American inner cities, we know that electoral shenanigans uh, plays a role in a lot of these inner cities and how they conduct their elections. And of course, because of the population and the demographic concentration of the cities, those machines, that electoral shenanigans can flip states. And there's tons of examples throughout history. We mentioned Tammany Hall. You could even talk about the 1960 election. You could talk about the election with Tilden. Uh, you know, you could go back many, many years and see how uh, these, these systems, you know, the boss tweeds of the world, you know, it's who counts the votes that matters. I mean, these things are real. We can address them. We can fight them while also still running solid campaigns and taking advantage of these ideologically neutral political uh, operations, whether it is ballot harvesting, whether it is mail-in, whether it is our early vote. There's no reason that we should be coming into a, a into a gunfight, a political gunfight with a dull butter knife. Uh, if the Democrats are going to be using, you know, a ballot harvesting, then let's go to the nursing homes and let's also do ballot harvesting. Let's go uh, to places right. that we know we can get our low enthusiasm, uh, low enthusiastic, say, white working class voters who are not thrilled by the top of the ticket. Maybe they'll only come out in person for Trump, but let's go and ballot harvest from them. Uh, we shouldn't shut these tactics, we should use them until we're in power and then reform the system. But look, I think a place like New York shows there's, there's a massive uh, ceiling for the Republican Party in areas of the country we did not think possible. And I think the Republican Party nationally should get uh, a little more with it and realize that we should be 
spending money and, and exerting effort to gain ground in places like New York or even in New Jersey, where you guys had a very close uh, election cycle last year. And that was totally, uh, you know, totally caught the, the Republican, uh, you know, apparatus off guard. They were spending millions in California. You know, but I'll just I'll tell you something that, you you know, I was I was approached by a certain election integrity nonprofit and asked for, you know, they had an idea to do something in New Jersey and to address something bite-sized, but manageable, but maybe that could have made a difference in, in some race or another. I prepared a proposal, a budget, spent actually quite a lot of time and not only my time, but other people in my office. They never got back to me. They never got back to me. And that leads me to the next question, which is, what's your take on the national leadership? You're talking about, you know, again, it, it, I think there are a lot of, I think the dust has not settled. And what, what are the victories and what are the losses? And what are we really, what are we accurately comparing things to is not obvious. But there are a lot of people on social media where, unfortunately, you and I spend too much time um, calling for the head of Ronald McDaniel, calling for, you know, you know, the establishment stinks. They don't know what they're doing. What, what's your take? Do you, do you think, you know, I think that's a facile call, but I do think, as, as, as the story that I just told you demonstrates, it isn't, you know, I, the Democrats are a better organized party. They're a true, a true activist political party. They have party discipline. They're like, the, they're, they're basically like communists. The, the less individualistic people are, the less individualistic the party is, the better it functions at a, as a party and the better it is at, at achieving, retaining uh, and enjoying power. Okay, but, but that's not who we are. And I do think on the one hand, you know, both, both my partner, Harmeet Dillon and my uh, brother from another mother, Kurt Schlichter, um, in recent days have made the point uh, as many others have, and you just did, if the things that are legal, as much as they're distasteful to us, we should be doing them too. And as Kurt points out, how do you think, if you don't think that's done in California and, and you're kidding yourself by, by Republicans in places where Republicans win. Given all that, um, it's, you know, what, from, for, again, from the grassroots looking up, do you think a change is appropriate or do you think, what do you, what's your take? I, I mean, I don't want you to step on any toes that you don't want to step on because, you know, you know we're, we're, I really do think people forget that we're on the same team. And I do, I, I don't like this. I, I mean, boy, you, you mentioned, I, I, I'm stopping you from answering the question, but I have to have, get, tell you this observation. You know, it, if, you, if you raise a question about something that Trump is doing, or you suggest that perhaps maybe the party leadership is doing something right that people don't understand, the way people seize on you, oh, you're part of the EGOP, oh, you're, you're an establishment Republican, oh, you're a rhino, a rhino? I'm a rhino? Are you freaking kidding me? Okay. Having said all that, and these are mostly anonymous, the, the, there's only one non-anonymous person who has recently lost his mind on that subject in the last week, and in particular with respect to Ron Coleman. So we're not even going to mention that name. But these tend to be anonymous loser accounts, not, to, not only loser accounts of 400,000 followers, 
What's your take? Leadership-wise, what do you think? So uh, I make this mistake sometimes that I you know, address the leadership in the establishment as this monolithic body. And I think there's a lot of different figures and a lot of different groups that have varying degrees of blame and praise, et cetera. You obviously have the RNC, you have the RGA, you have the NRSCC, the SRCC, all these- RNLA. RM, yeah, exactly. Of all these alphabet soup, you know, uh, political agencies and organizations that uh, uh, you could you could look at them individually. But look, I think fundamentally, uh, this was an election cycle that we should have do done a lot better in. Uh, I think that should be the baseline consensus that everyone could come to an agreement on. I think we could agree that there were pockets of areas we did very well, and there were pockets of areas we did very poorly. And I think everyone has been coming up with a lot of different narratives and, and reasonings and, and, and things. And some of them are not mutually exclusive. Some of them you know, are all overlaying and overlapping. Uh, but I do think there is a core uh, issue with uh, some of the Republican leadership. And uh, I do think that there needs to be changes. And I think there do need to be uh, some sort of, you know, uh, uh, consequences for, for not delivering. I think if, if we are going to truly turn this into a party machine that operates akin to the Democrats, we need to have an incentive structure that incentivizes victories and uh, punishes people for incompetence and for not doing their job. And if you are, say, you know, Tom Emmer and you're running, you know, the, 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 the House Republican leadership, uh, you know, uh, uh, for all these re-elections and all these campaigns and, and you have a pretty abysmal performance, you should not be getting a promotion. I don't understand what his pitch is to become whip. He's like, oh, you know, we were supposed to win X. We only won this. And uh, I want to, I, I need a promotion. I mean, it, to me, this is the kind of stuff that's- that His pitch get. worked, right? His pitch worked. His pitch worked. I mean, I guess if you're talking to, you know, the House GOP conference, I don't know what the average IQ in that room is, but, but you know- but, but, but before we finish that thought, one thing I do think people really don't appreciate when they is that they forget, and this is the same thing also with Mitch McConnell. They're, they forget two things. One is that you don't manage things in Congress or in a leadership solely in ways that are broadcast to the public. In other words, the ability uh, the ability to to discipline a party caucus or to get deals done. Is right. And that, that is a skill set. And that is certainly a skill set that you could definitely say McConnell has. I mean, he certainly runs his caucus with with a tight leash and, and a strong whip. And, you know, when he uses that to good ends, you know, blocking Merrick Garland, then I give him all the credit when he uses that. On judiciary, he, on judiciary, he yeah. has done magic, magic. I, I agree. And, and when he decides to use his skill set and his power base to advance the ends, the ideological ends of the party and its constituents, he gets all the praise. The problem is, is that it's inconsistent. He will also use that same skill set and that same, you know, power base to protect Murkowski in a place like Alaska at the expense of, say, a, a Blake Masters. So, Many and here's the thing about the establishment. I don't think that they're all. I think there is a degree of incompetence, particularly in the in some of the mid to low level staff. But at the top of it, these are some very smart, shrewd individuals who understand power dynamics, who understand how to win elections. And the problem is, is that frankly, the establishment GOP has better operatives, better consultants, and better you know political minds than the populist ragtag grassroots base of the party. And they have years of experience to to, to generate that. And that is a disparity that continues to play out in any intra party. Uh, dynamic. But 
it, it is still worth saying that there were certainly failures in leadership. And I know that their new talking point as well. We had internals, we had polls going back to September that showed Roe and showed this. Well, if you had those numbers, then what were you doing in the lead up to try to fix it? What were you doing? They're going to try to claim, oh, we were you know, post facto. They're saying, oh, we knew we were going to lose months ago. But the fact that we had a narrow win, that is a win. You guys should be you guys should be, you know, you know, cheering us. But I, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And even if we buy it at face value, it still doesn't show what they did uh, from a uh, organizational, logistical, political standpoint to change that dynamic in the lead up to the election. Because you can talk about row all you want, but we still came within five in a place like New York. You can talk about row all you want. We still won Florida by 20 points. You can talk about row all you want, but we still you know, did very well in Texas and we did very well in many other areas. So pointing at their, their attempts to scapegoat, whether it's Trump or Roe, you saw McConnell come out, you know, say it was the divisiveness, the language, all these things. These are all post facto excuses. It's not the real reasons. The real reasons is that we have a party that is a party leadership and, and a party apparatus that, that is very much out of lockstep with the base of its the base of its party, its true constituents, its grassroots wing. They, they don't see eye to eye ideologically. They don't see eye to eye on messaging. They don't see eye to eye on policy. And those are the people in many cases, if you look at many of these races that did not show up, it is these white working class voters, many of these rurals, which we saw in the specials that were just not turning out to the same degree they turned out for Trump. And you can talk about flipping the suburbs. You can talk about flipping you know, some college educated voters on the margins. But until you recognize in the same way the Democrats recognize that unless you can have a very aggressive base that you can turn out on a moment's notice, you will always lose your elections. And the Democrats have that base. They identified it. We talked about it in New York with African-Americans who dominate the party structure in New York, by the way. Populist white working class do not dominate the party structure of the GOP. Unless you can get that base out, unless you can effectively turn it out, uh, be, you're not going to win elections. And if they have such scorn and distaste for you, for McConnell with a 7% approval rating, for McCarthy, for McDaniel, whoever, then, you know, we're going to continue to face this 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 issue where, you know, the polls will say one thing, we, we, our, our gut political analysis says one thing, but when it comes to election day, we continue to lose. Uh, and I think this really falls squarely on the leadership. The leadership directed funds. It was not Trump. Trump is not a party leader in a European sense. He has no control over the RNC budgets, the the NRSC, the SRCC, the NRCC, RGA, all these things. He had no say over that. He, he ran his own PACs. He gave money. He did fundraisers. He did his, you know, his did his rallies. He did plenty, but there was plenty. And, and there was no, there wasn't a shortage of money. There was plenty of money. We had plenty of resources and we can still effectively win races, even if outspent by the Democrats. But where were the, where was this money allocated? What were they doing during the primaries? Uh, to sabotage candidates that they did not like, sabotage candidates they knew would not vote for them uh, in, in, in a leadership election, sabotage candidates that they knew were going to come in and be part of a, of a resistance caucus to their, to their leadership play. I mean, they are much more concerned about maintaining a, tight, maintaining a tight grip over their caucus, over their conference, than they are at, at expanding that conference and making governing majorities. Because, of course, if they're in a governing majority, they have to be held to an account. But if they're a token opposition, they can get pats on the head had, they can continue to fundraise, they can continue to call up their buddies in corporate America and dissuade them from donating here, there, and there. But I think that's part of it. And then there's another thing that's a, that's a broader topic. I think there's a general disconnect, particularly with leadership, but this applies to most of our elected representatives in Washington, where they are kowtowing to a donor class, to a donor base that is very much out of sync 
with the needs, with the wants, and with the aspirations of the actual Republican voting base. And that disconnect only widens uh, as our you know, money and politics system continues to devolve and get more rent-seeking and more grotesque. And, and they are ca catering to one set of people over the core constituents, and that is playing out on an electoral level to punish us and to hurt us. That was kind of a jumbled mess, but that's some of it my- It was a jumbled points. mess. There's a lot of great stuff in there. And I, and I want to actually, you know, you talk about, you know, maintaining control over that caucus or in the case, or, or, or over local parties or state parties. Right. And these, and these fiefdoms, whether it's at the county level or the state level, people don't hear about them until they're a disaster, like in Arizona. Pataki, killed the New York State Republican Party because his main priority was to control New York, not to win, not to, not to retain the gains that Republicans had been making and to consolidate them and build on them, but rather to make himself president someday, which was- Never happened. And part of that is, and this was the second point I was gonna make before, which was that in a, these people, these are the people in leadership, the people who are, whether it's at the state level or the national level, they're people. Yeah. They have real relationships, human relationships. I don't know why um, McConnell and Murkowski uh, are, you know, so close, but at the end of the day, people do make decisions and they do, and they do fail to make decisions that could have political implications based on relationships. And you do have these longstanding relationships. And there is a problem, of course, that Washington has become extremely incestuous. Uh, I mean, it's always been, but it's, there's more than ever because there's more Washington than ever. And there's a limit to how much we can, you know, we, and even someone like you, who's, who, you know, you really talk the talk in a way, I'm not political like you are, uh, I'm a simple country lawyer here in New Jersey, you know. Um, this is, I mean, listen, we, we, we're, we're out of time today. It's ridiculous. There's so much to talk about. I just want to say one more thing before we get, we get off, which is, do you think that there's anything more than, than local interest in what I want to call the, the Inavernikov phenomenon? She's a friend of ours. She's obviously taken great advantage of the political shift among not only Orthodox Jews, but Russian Jews in Brooklyn. But she has, she is, I'm seeing a, a phenomenal local political force, you know, it coming, you know, into, into a great deal of prominence. What do you, what, what's your take on, on Ina? Look, I think Ina uh, is definitely uh, the face of the Republican Party in South Brooklyn. I would say that, you know, the environment that she won in uh, could have been, uh, you know, could have turned out local wins like Ina, you know, even a decade earlier. I mean, there were tons of fundamentals on the ground in South Brooklyn uh, to turn out uh, a Republican victory, a Republican city council member, a Republican assembly member, a Republican state senator. I think we just flipped another seat down there for assembly, uh, one Russian Jew, 
Republican ousting another uh, more uh, Americanized Jew that was a Democrat. Uh, but these these fundamentals have existed for many years, and it goes back to the county party that we were talking about earlier. I would say it was the county party. I would think it was the state party that did not recognize that fertile ground, that did not recognize that realignment, did not recognize the trends that were going on in Brooklyn, South Brooklyn. And, you know, this is very localized, but maybe they were still putting a lot of their efforts and a lot of their eggs into a place like Bay Ridge because, you know, in the 90s, you know, Bay Ridge was still Italian and Irish and voted for Giuliani, but those people either moved or died and they still were, you know, too slow to recognize what's happening in South Brooklyn. And Ina uh, did win and now she is taking advantage of that. And she's building up a, a real apparatus there. She's a member of our club. Uh, her legislative director is on my board. So we have a good rapport with her and she's doing good work. But I think the Ina story is, is interesting to point out because it could have happened 10 years sooner. We could have had an Ina, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, we didn't have to wait until it was like, you know, a 70% win. We could have had an Ina with a 51 a 51% win governing and managing her district and her constituents a decade ago. And I think that just goes to show that there is also a disconnect at the local, state, and national level with the Republican Party and where they see their voters, where they see their base. You know, maybe the national Republicans still think there's hope for, you know, the white college educated suburbanites, when in reality they should be targeting, you know, let's say some off the boat Russian Jews in South Brooklyn, or maybe they should be targeting, you know, some more working class union guys in Michigan. I think that disconnect that we're still in the midst of that's still, you know, haunting the party from 2016 with Trump's destruction of the blue wall. I think that is still playing out at the local state and federal level. But I do think South Brooklyn is going to turn into a Republican stronghold in the city of New York. I think given the demographic trends with Hasidic voters and giving demographic trends uh, with realignment of Russian Jewish voters, other uh, Asian voters, Brooklyn, you know, could start to be a 40% Republican borough. Queens was just 40%. Uh, so if you build up these margins in the outer borough, this outer borough coalition, and you can cross the 30, 35% mark in the city, that puts us into a mathematical uh, realm where Republicans can actually win statewide. And that is what we need to build in New York. We need to win on the margins block by block. We don't have to win majorities. We don't have to win over 50%. But if you can turn a place like South Brooklyn into a 60% Republican area, if you could turn Borough Park into a 60% Republican area, if you can flip Queens. Oh, Borough, Borough, Park, Borough Park is way past 60%. Yeah, way, way past, past, way past. And think and and think how huge that redistricting. I mean, I mean that 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 redistricting decision was. Yep. A a, a map that even Cuomo appointed judges couldn't live with. That's yep. how embarrassing. I, I still don't get it, Gavin. I didn't know there were any Democrats left in this country who were embarrassed by anything. Well, you'd be shocked about the kind of cold proxy war going on in the Democrat Party behind the scenes. I mean, Cuomo has been making calls and actively funding things to snub the New York Democrats, to snub Hochul, to snub Tish James. You know, I would not be shocked if those judges, you know, maybe part of them, you know, he, he did appoint judges that were actually pretty moderate, former Republicans. You know, they were actually pretty moderate. So I will say that. Yes, no, judges, I, I have seen some left wingers complain about his fascist his judicial yeah. appointments. There was an ideological component there for sure. They certainly were not as far left as the bulk of the party. But I also think Cuomo has been putting in calls uh, and he has been funding operations behind the scenes to try to chip away at some of the Repub uh, some of the Democrats' uh, successes. And I think he was very happy uh, to see such a narrow 
uh, victory for Hochul. And I think he would have been happy to see Elise Zeldin win because he would have been able to come out in four years and position himself as the last Democrat to win. And you need him. And to be quite frank, he is an electoral juggernaut. And there were areas in New York City and New York State that even as red as they are, Staten Island, uh, Whitestone and Queens, a lot of these ethnic Catholic Italian Irish areas that did still vote for Cuomo uh, in 2018 in high numbers, even though they were trending Republican at the national and, and, and local level. Cuomo has this appeal uh, that may not match his ideology or his policies, but he has this sort of persona, this character, this outer borough. I'm that Italian guy you know you grew up with in Queens. He has that kind of uh, that that kind of um, character about him that helps him win over voters, and that's kind of the you know it's hard to quantify that, but that actually plays into some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. When you talk about candidate quality, you talk about these things. Trump had that. He was authentic. He was a billionaire, but he appealed to working class people because he was who he was. Oz certainly didn't have that. The average Republican stiff neck, you know, Brooks Brothers guy, he doesn't have that. A Cuomo, he does have that. And a Cuomo could be as left as a governor as he can be, and he will still win over conservative Democrats, conservative Republicans, because they just like his 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 you know je ne sais quoi I don't know how you say it but it's just he has that thing about him and Trump had that many candidates have that and even on the populist side we need to learn that because we you know we push these ideologically great candidates you know a Blake Masters a, a JD Vance they're ideologically great they're going to be great voters but do they have that grit do they have that kind of character do they have that kind of vibe that charisma that also appeals to people at just a fundamental base level. And I think a lot of politics boils down to that, that they want to be able to look at you and say, is this a person that I could, you know, have a beer with? Is this a person that I can resonate with? And we hate that that's what really drives a lot of people, but that is what drives people. It's less ideology and it's more this kind of cultural affinity. And until we can master that art of creating and pushing candidates that have a sort of cultural affinity and an ideological affinity with the base, um, you know, that disconnect is going to hurt us. And maybe it won't hurt us in a sense like J.D. Vance still won, but the winning margins could be much higher and much safer if we master how to communicate and how to have our candidates that really mesh and blend well with, with their voters. A tremendous amount of political comments, sense, and insight from you, Gavin Wax. Thank you so much. Quickly, before we log, we log off, what are you up to? How do you pay the rent? It's not through the New York Young Republican Club. I know that. Uh, but what, what what's your day job these days? Or which, uh, what are your four day jobs these days? What, whatever. Sure. Well, uh, right now I am working on a book uh, called The Emerging Populist Majority, kind of a play off of the uh, older books, The Emerging Democrat Majority and The Emerging Republican Majority. Uh, so that is a book that uh, I'm hoping will be will be released in uh, Q1 of uh, next year with my co-author, Troy Olson, uh, who is an Afghan war vet and a uh, member of our board of governors. And he's also the legislative director for Ina Vernikov. So I'm working uh, with him on that book. Uh, I do a lot of writing. You can catch all my writing on American greatness and, uh, you know, town hall and a, a variety of other places. And I work at Getter as uh, the digital marketing uh, director there. That's my day job, nine to five. You know, I, I mostly work in the private sector. So this is all kind of a side hobby for me in a way. And no, I do not get paid by the by the YRs. I know many people claim that, but I'm a volunteer uh, through and through there. I wish I got paid, but that, that's uh, that's another story. Well, we can't call you a grifter for that, though, I guess. Well, that, that's the funny thing. It's that, you know, it, it's usually the grifters calling the volunteers grifters. You know, I, I, I don't get paid a dime when I go knock a thousand doors on a weekend. I don't get paid a dime uh, to help and advise candidates. You know, I'm just doing that in my free time because it's a passion. But, you know, it's always the grifters that like to self-project. Gavin, thanks for coming. Thanks for bringing your incredible hair. 
Uh, I think we're supposed to have drinks next week, so yeah. I'll be I'll be seeing you again soon. We're yes. going to throw this up real fast because uh, the story, the story. Listen, this election isn't going to get old very very quickly, but this is a, this is virtually a non-edit first take interview. You got lots to say, and I'm glad. I think I maybe even asked some of the right questions. Talk to you soon. Take care. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day. Day.